Real life? We are wrapping up Life in Babylon today. We've been going through this series of looking at what's going on with God's people in the midst of being in Babylon. We've been going through the journey looking at uh, different characters in Scripture. We started off with Josiah, a godly king who brought revival to God's people, but it was short-lived in that reality. And eventually, uh, they were sent off to, to Babylon. And you're going, well, what is Babylon? It's an area that we know of uh, where God's people were sent from Jerusalem. They were held captive, sent over to Babylon. There's a map that we've been looking at uh, that talks about Babylon and, and the direction. Maybe there's a map? Maybe? No map today, I guess. Uh, oh, there it is. Here we go. So, a map. There's the map. Uh, 1,600 miles, God's people were held captive and taken over to Babylon and were held in captivity in regards to experiencing God's judgment. They were not faithful. And God said, if you're not faithful, you'll be taken over. And so 1,600 miles, they have been taken over by the Babylonians and eventually the Persians and the Medes. And uh, we are in the middle of that story. About 600 years is when... Uh, this journey started before the time of Christ in the Old Testament. And Babylon is not only an area of a map of where God's people are, but it's also an archetype through all of Scripture of a type of people that are opposed to God's ways, His will, His direction. It, it personifies, honestly, um, evil. And, and, and the Bible kind of talks about that all throughout the beginning of the Bible, the middle of the Bible, and the end of the Bible. Even in Revelation, it's referred to as code language in regards to a people that are set up set against God's will and his ways. And the reason why we're going through this series is because we are experiencing something similar in our culture where the, the faith of us, of, our, of us as believers, as Christians, it's, it's becoming more and more, a culture, more and more hostile towards what we believe. And so we've been asking the question, what does it look like for us to walk faithfully in Babylon like they did? And we've been learning and getting wisdom from them in regards to Daniel, uh, Josiah, Jeremiah, and today we're wrapping up the series, and we're talking about Esther. Everybody say Esther this morning. Now, I'm just going to be really um, transparent with you this morning, and I'm going to share something with you that, like, I hope that you don't judge me for it. I hope that you don't, you know, look at me with shameful eyes and disappointment. I'm just being honest with you about a time in my life that I'm not really proud of, but uh, it shaped me in a significant way. Um, so it was m the summer after my sixth grade year. It was the first summer where I was left alone during the summer. And uh, I, my, my younger siblings actually were taken care of because my mom didn't want to entrust them to me yet. And I was, I was a responsible kid, but you know I was still young. And so we had some really good neighbor friends of ours that we did a lot of life with together and became really good friends. Anyway, she was a stay-at-home mom, had some younger kids than me, and she said to me, she said, hey, like, if you're ever lonely and you just want to come hang out, like, you're always welcome to come over to our house and hang out. I said, okay, that sounds great. And so she said, um, we can even, if you want, watch soap operas together. <laughs> And I got sucked into days of our lives. <laughs> and I got sucked into Bo and Hope and Stefano, the whole thing. It only lasted a summer, okay? It was just a summer. 
You might be saying, how does this have to do with Esther? Honestly, Esther reads like a soap opera. Like, it is crazy, the drama. I mean, we're talking drama that's taking place. But on a more serious note, Esther's written about 100 years after captivity has taken place. And in fact, some of God's people are already making their way back to Jerusalem. The temple is already being rebuilt and there are plans now to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But what also is happening is there's a group of people that actually stay in Babylon. There's a group of Jews that, for whatever reason, didn't make the trek back. Just like we talked about in regards to Babylon and, and the journey there, there's some that stay in Jerusalem. Well, when it comes to coming back, there's some that stay in Babylon. And it's part of the dispersion of God's people all across the world at that time. And so in the midst of Esther, we've got Ezra and, and Nehemiah that are returning back. We've got a group of Jews that are staying in Susa, which is the Persian capital. And here's what's fascinating. As this book is being written about 400 years before Jesus now, 400 to 500 years before Jesus is coming back, here's what's fascinating about Esther. And this is really important. It's a book that never mentions God's name. Never mention God's name. But in the midst of it, God has purpose for it. And what is that purpose? Well, let's dive into Esther that reads like a soap opera. And we're going to look at four main characters today. We're going to cover seven chapters today, you guys. In Esther chapter 1, we get main character first one, King Xerxes, who's king of Persia, says this. Then in Esther chapter 1, verse 1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. And we say, well, what is that? It's India to Ethiopia. Huge amount of land. Huge amount of territory. And at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media... The princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, then the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. And so... King Xerxes, you're going to learn from him all throughout the story, is a guy who loves to party and loves to show his fame and shows his money and his glory and all of that. And in fact, in the midst of this banquet, he says this, let's throw a party and let's make sure that we lay it all out. They serve wine to all the people in golden goblets. And he says this, drink as much as you would like. Nothing could go wrong here. Nothing could go wrong here. And so they throw a party. And on the seventh day, while he's full of spirits, it says, he asks to bring his queen Vashti out in front of the party. And this is what he says. This is not in your notes. I just want to read it to you. On the seventh day, he's full of high spirits. And he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring out Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles for she was lovely to look at. What does she say? Ain't gonna happen, man. She rebuffs him because not only is he asking to display her beauty, most likely asking her to do something shameful. 
And she says, I'm not doing it. And so the king, what does he do? He gathers all his really wise men, his noble men, and they come together and they, go, they talk about this. And, and ultimately they go, this can't happen. Because if this happens, the other women in all the country, maybe they'll do the same thing. And so we got to put her right. We got to show that we're in charge, that we're in charge of our household. And so they remove her as queen and put out an order talking about how men need to be in charge of their homes. And then these wise men, in addition to that, tell King Xerxes, we should just have a beauty pageant. We should figure out a way to replace her. These guys are really smart. <laughs> now we get to understand who Mordecai and Esther are. Esther chapter 2, verse 5. There was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jar, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried in exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. We talked about him through this series. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as, what's it say? Esther. Had a lovely figure and was a beautiful uh, who was beautiful, uh, Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. And so we get introduced to Mordecai and Esther. And so in the midst of, of this introduction, the king has a huge beauty pageant where he brings all the beautiful women together and all of the known area. And, and, and Esther is one of those women. And lo and behold, uh, King Xerxes chooses Esther as his favorite. And not only does he choose Esther as, as her favorite, he begins to, to wine her and dine her, and he offers uh, beauty uh, arrangements and, you know, the spas and the pedicures, the whole thing, right? He says, Esther, this is all yours, and, and wanting to make her a replacement to King Vashti. And then enters uh, the next part of the story, Mordecai. Mordecai discovers a coup, and this is an important part of the story, a coup to actually kill the king. And in the midst of this assassination attempt and the king, he goes and tells Esther, Esther, there's an assassination plot for the king. She goes to the king and they find out that it's true. And she tries to give credit to Mordecai, but Mordecai isn't really honored for it. The men are assassinated. He tried to assassinate the king. And this is an important part of the story. Hold on to it because we're going to come back to it. Um, and so in the midst of, of, of Esther trying to gain influence with the king and actually trying to give Mordecai credit, he doesn't get honored but enters in another guy named Haman. Everybody say Haman this morning. Haman. And what's amazing is we actually have archaeological picture of Haman and who he is from, from now 2,400 years ago. This is the picture of Haman. <laughs> Newman. Complete, pure evil. Is Newman... And Haman. Whenever, the first time I read it, I was like, man, this guy, Haman, Newman. Like, it, it comes together. It really does. <laughs> Who's Haman? Well, Haman is a part of the leadership of the king. And Haman actually gets honored by the king. And the king actually puts an edict saying, Haman, we want you to be honored. Everybody needs to kneel to Haman, and here's where the drama continues to take place. Verse 5, 
uh, Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. He was enraged. And having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai and said Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. And throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pure, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. And if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And he says, keep the money. And the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Again, king's really wise guy. Just signs the edict, says do whatever you want. And so the edict goes out amongst all the people and the whole people of the Jews in the midst of the land, they begin to mourn because they're going to be assassinated. They're going to be killed. And as they're mourning and crying out, Mordecai, it says, goes out and begins to tear his clothes, wear sackcloths and ashes, and prays and cries out to God, how could this be true? And word gets to Esther as to why Mordecai is crying and wailing and really crying out to God and mourning the reality that their time is coming to an ear. They're going to be assassinated. And in the midst of this conversation from Mordecai to Esther, these famous words that if you've been in God's word for any amount of time, you've probably heard this part of the story. Esther chapter four, this is what Mordecai says to Esther, his niece. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your families, uh, your father's family will perish and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this what you may not realize is that esther had kept her nationality kept her heritage kept her faith quiet from the king during this entire time and so the king doesn't realize that esther his queen is jewish but you've been put to this position for such a time as this mordecai says then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, listen to this, go gather three, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. She says, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and, I, and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this, is, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You see, the risk for the queen is that if she starts this conversation, he does not agree, she most likely would be assassinated. And so, Esther gathers her courage and says, I will go and not only use my influence to talk to the king, but in my hopes and desires that he would listen, and not only would he save me, he would save our people. So what does Esther do? She asks for a banquet to be held the next day with her, the king, and Newman, I mean Haman. <laughs> 
The king agrees. And Haman on his way home sees Mordecai and, and Haman's rage begins to build as he's anticipating God's people being obliterated. He sees Mordecai, his, his rage builds and so he has poles that are built specifically for Mordecai, for him to not only have all the Jews killed, but for Haman, for Mordecai specifically, he wants to impale Mordecai onto these poles. And as he's building these poles, <laughs> the funny thing is the king later on that night has a rough night's sleep. This is where the story begins to turn. He has a rough night's sleep, and so he goes to his, his people and says, would you be willing to Tell, tell, tell me the story of my reign. Tell me the story of, of what I've done and what I've accomplished. And sure enough, they tell the story of when he was about to be assassinated, that that coup was revealed to him. And he asked the question, who was that guy who did that again? And they said it was Mordecai. He says, was that guy ever honored for what he did? And they said, no, he wasn't honored. And so the next day... Or, the king says, we've got to honor this guy. And, and Haman comes forward the next morning to talk to the king. And the king asks him, says, let me ask you this question. If I were to honor somebody within my kingdom, what should I do? And what does Haman think? He's like, oh, he's thinking about me. So he says, well, I would, I would get a royal robe and I'd put it around him and I'd get a horse and I'd put him on the horse and I would parade him around the city and make sure the people honored him and loved him and, and cheered for him. And the king says, I want you to do this. And Haman, I'm guessing in excitement, leaning in, <laughs> hears the king say, I want you to grab Mordecai and do that in front of the whole city. You can just imagine Haman. I'm just like, what? And so sure enough, he gets carried around the whole city throughout the day. And Haman goes home, gets ready for the banquet later that night. As they enter into the banquet, Esther, the king, Haman are all having time together and eventually Esther gets to the point where she has the courage to tell the king king I'm going to be assassinated and all my people are going to be assassinated because an edict that you put forth through a man and the king becomes enraged and asks the question who is it that did this and right there at the dinner table Esther says Haman and the, and the king full of rage Make sure that Haman is executed on the gallows that were set up for Mordecai. What do we learn from the story of Esther? I think one of the things that we can learn is this, is despite exile and God's voice being absent, God still is working and moving his people forward. He's moving his people forward. Esther, in the midst of God's voice, beginning to grow silent, is choosing courageously to do the right thing, no matter the cost. I love what Sienna Scott says. She says this, that God vindicated his people through Esther's courage and wisdom. Haman and his sons hanged. Honorable Mordecai received Haman's signet ring in estate and became the most trusted advisor in the kingdom. And on the 13th day of Adar, which Haman scheduled for the Persian people to annihilate the Israelites, 
God's chosen people defend themselves for two days, and then they partied. And every year, the Jewish people celebrate the festival of Purim to commemorate their deliverance brought about when Esther chose to do the right thing, even when it was the hard thing to do. Sometimes choosing the right thing may cost us greatly. Other times, like in the book of Esther, our integrity is vindicated and rewarded. And no matter the outcome, choosing the right thing when it's the hard thing is always a good thing. And one day, we can stand before our King of Kings with the confidence that we chose well. What does that have to do with us? As we wrap up this sermon series, I believe that it's imperative for us to remember that you and I are called to move the mission forward, that you and I are called to move the mission forward in the midst of living in Babylon, that oftentimes it seems like God's voice is absent or maybe distant. But I want to remind you that as we are called to that reality, let's go back to the Jews in the midst of this place. Sometimes God uses this season to prepare you for the next. Why is God beginning to draw silent? For the next 400 years, God is remaining silent to his people. But we have to remember that in the midst of silence, breakthrough is eventually coming. 400 years, God is silent, but who comes onto the scene next? John the Baptist that begins to proclaim the kingdom of God is near and that there was one who was going to come who was going to be even greater than me, that I wouldn't even be able to touch his shoes, that he was greater than me. And who is that? Jesus. Jesus. And so in the midst of the season that you may find yourself in where you feel like God's voice is silent, God is about ready to bring breakthrough in your life in the lifetime to come. And would you be willing to be faithful even in that reality? Would you be willing to continue to walk out faithfulness and moving the mission forward? How do we actually do that? How do we bring God's mission forward in the midst of God being silent? I would say it's a couple things. Number one, where has God given you influence? Where has God given you influence? And are you using it for his purposes? I love this quote. It's a long quote, but it's rich. Mel Lawrence says this, influence is not a weaker word for leadership. It is the hidden power behind leadership. We've used the word influence a long time, going back to the 30s at least. But I believe we have not appreciated the depth of what it means. We think of influence as having an effect or getting people to do things. It is so much more. The word influence means something that flows in and causes changes, usually a force that is imperceptible or hidden. Influencers are people who lead by living in proximity to scores of ordinary people who are looking for some source of wisdom, discernment, power, truth, and other qualities that begin a transformative work on their life. Just think of the effect if massive numbers of believers woke up to their potential to exercise spiritual influence in the schools where they teach, the boardrooms where they deliberate, in the clinics where they care for people's health, in the churches where they serve, in the assemblies where they legislate, in the homes where they raise their children. God has given you influence to move his kingdom forward. Where do you have influence? Where do you have influence? And are you willing to courageously lean into that and ask the question, where can God's kingdom reign through the influence that God has given me?
Where do you have influence? And lean in. What do you care about? What issues of injustice make you the angriest? What could you do about it? Where are the areas in your life where you go, man, that, that's just not what God desires. Lean into it. Be courageous. Lean into the calling that God has for you. What are the top defining moments of your life? And I want you to think through the hurt and the pain that you experience and the good. Why? I don't know if you know this is about me. Have you noticed how much I talk about family discipleship? I talk about it all the time. Why? Because growing up, I didn't really get a whole lot of that. I had a broken family growing up. First part was great. Second part, not so great. So for me, I'm doing everything in my power not to allow my kids to experience what I experienced growing up. What about you? What about you? Some of the most formative people in my life were my coaches. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna coach. What is it that God has called you to lean into? Where do you see God's fingerprints in the midst of your life? And where might God take you if you were faithful in the small things every single day? And I just wanna tell you a story today of a gal named Sarah Miller. This is a picture of her. This is Sarah's story. She felt called in the midst of a worship service in her church. She felt called to do something about the poor neighborhood of the Bronx. And she picked up everything that she had. She moved to the Bronx. Let me tell you, the Bronx, two thirds of adults are unemployed. 60% don't have a high school diploma. 4% graduated from college. And as she moved there and stayed in that neighborhood, she was watching kids, droves of kids walking home, kids that are way too young to be walking home by themselves. This is what she says. I thought to myself, who is fearing for these kids? As long as they're forced to walk home on these streets, I will too. And as we began to focus on being present in the neighborhood, we realized that the people that we were supposed to be afraid of actually greeted us by name, gave us huge hugs as we walked by. And before long, kids were hanging at our house until midnight asking for food. We realized no one was taking care of them. Most of them lived with one guardian who was either strung out on drugs or was working three jobs. So we started giving them after-school snacks, helping them with their homework, feeding them dinner, and putting them to bed in their homes every night. And all of this was happening while I had a full-time job I had not only loved, but I found myself with a huge amount of power, influence, and wealth within the company. I was working 80 hours a week, so I had less and less time to read Bible stories to the kids, or be there for my neighbor when she was diagnosed with AIDS. And I had to make a choice. After wrestling for months, I decided to quit my job, raise support, so I give all my energy to being a part of God's renewal in my neighborhood 
and I didn't know where the money was going to come from, but I had faith because I knew I was in the center of God's kingdom becoming a reality on earth. The poorest neighborhood in America is in the most powerful city on earth. And as the people of God, we are called to steward our privilege on behalf of the city, the poor in our city. What an honor that God uses our small acts of obedience to bring his kingdom in forgotten neighborhoods. And as she continued to love on these kids and other people started loving on these kids, they launched an organization called A House on Beekman where eventually they raised $10 million to begin to walk beside these kids, give them a place to go after school, love them and disciple them in the poorest city in America. She was willing to leave her comfort to go towards her calling and God used it in a tremendous way. What about you? What is God calling on you to do in the midst of living in Babylon? Because God wants us to bring the gospel to the city no matter what's going on in the city. And I know you might be saying, well, man, as it gets worse, I just wanna head to the woods. And I'm like, I love you, I care about you, I want to do that too, but the city needs the gospel, amen? So how can we be like Esther? Courageous in the midst of Babylon all around us. What if we live that way? What if we ask that question, what does the city need? And what if we leaned in to courage? What if we leaned in to what God was calling us to do, to leave comfort for the calling of the gospel? As we wrap up this morning, I wanna just invite you to reflect on what we just talked about. And as we get to communion and we take communion together as a family, I wanna ask you, what is that calling that, that Jesus is inviting you into? And if you came in this morning, you didn't receive communion, you would like to take communion, I wanna invite you just to raise your hand and these amazing servants would love to serve you. And for some of you this morning, you've never made Jesus Lord of your life. And Jesus is drawing on you to come to him. He's drawing you closer. He's inviting you to trust him, to make him Lord because you are beginning to understand that Jesus loves you, which is a crazy concept for some of you, that Jesus actually loves you. And then he died for you. And he invites you in following him for you to die to yourself. And so as we begin to take communion, I just wanna invite you, whether this is your first time of dying to yourself or maybe God's calling on you again. For those of you who've been following him for a long time, he's calling on you to die to yourself again to move out of the comfort and into the calling that he has for your life. I wanna invite you to just spend time with Jesus this morning. Spend time praying, talking to him, and we'll take communion together here as a family in a minute. Let's pray.